How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm your host, Justin Podur. I have Manuel Rosenthal back uh, today with me. Uh, Manuel is impossible to describe in a short amount of time, but he's a uh, he's a physician. He's a he's an activist. He's uh, Colombia. He's from Colombia. Um, he's been working on many many different things for a long time, and recently. Uh, he was, he's just come back from a trip to Turkey where he was among, uh, Syrian and Kurdish, well, yeah, Syrian refugees, including Kurdish and Arab and others, um, from Aleppo and other parts of, uh, other parts of Syria. So I thought it would be great to talk to him, uh, or I should say you, Manuel. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's good to be here and maybe just to reflect jointly and then share it with whoever listens to the Austin Circle this time to see if they help us think together about this, this situation and share. That's it. So, you know, I know we've been talking about this for many years. Uh, this is kind of what we do. We watch these situations in horror and look for ways that we can try to say something or make a difference. And the Syrian one has been particularly long and particularly horrifying and a particularly helpless feeling. So I, you know, I envied you for at least being able to go and, and be there, close to there and be among people. Can you just, just tell me like what, what your impressions were initially? Well, I'll share with you what happened in a day like today. We were invited to an association of Syrian uh, refugees, uh, one of many in the city of Istanbul, in a poor neighborhood there. You could not tell that anything like that existed because it wasn't like a, uh, an apartment building of, for working class or poor people. And uh, you walked in there and people greeted you and it didn't seem like any different like the, uh, from, uh, from the houses in the neighborhood. And then uh, the story starts unveiling. Then you see mostly women and children, some men, in the basement of this building and there's more and more of a crowd coming in and then you find out what's going on is that there are at least we are told at least uh, 800,000 refugees in the city of Istanbul and something close to 2 million people in Turkey but there could be many more nobody knows exactly how many people there are in there and what is going on in that building is that the Syrian refugees have organized themselves in order to do a screening process with counterparts that are mostly organizations, not NGOs, but some NGOs as well, but mostly organized Turkish people who want to help them out to find a way into not only surviving, but uh, recovering some dignity. But I'll give you an idea. They're trying to screen out if there's anything urgent, health-wise, education-wise, uh, housing, etc. And then after the screening is done and they organize in different rooms people, then they try to get people into the Turkish system to be looked after in the most basic necessity. Most of the uh, Syrian refugees are not registered formally in Turkey, hence they have no right to any of the social services, so they do not exist. And most of the people that we saw that day in that association are people from Aleppo with all kinds of wounds, injuries, not uh, considering, I mean, physical injuries, but also 
mental, psychological disaster. But here is this, the, the impression I'd like to provide you with. Most of the people we saw there and almost everywhere give us an idea of the fact that the conditions, the living conditions in Syria for somebody like me coming from Colombia and having seen other places were very good. Like people had access to healthcare, to education, to their basic necessities for the most part were solved and there was a sense of security in spite of or within a regime that we, I'm not going to discuss at the moment. And then this is the impression I got. Suddenly war came and war came from everywhere. And it, it's a vicious war, the most destructive war that eventually targeted hospitals and schools and schools for the smallest children and even underground hospitals were targeted and systematically bombarded. The, the later part of the war, and particularly Aleppo, consisted of the assassination of healthcare personnel before an attack started on a particular neighborhood. So when people realized in horror that the hospital was being bombed or the healthcare facility or the improvised hospital, then they knew the attack was coming and it was time to run and leave everything behind. So once this war coming from everywhere, from all kinds of armies came, the outcome was the destruction of Syria, the dispossession of Syrian people and the transformation of an entire country of people into refugees, the transformation into pe from peoples into victims. And then, right after that, at this moment, while we speak, a massive reconstruction process involving mostly the strongest economies of the so-called first world. And it seems, it seemed to everyone we talked to who dared to speak from Turkey, Turkish people looking after Syrian people or Syrian people themselves, it seemed to them that there was a huge business developing and a, a major profit being made not only in destroying Syria, but in reconstructing Syria, and then also in looking after refugees. So here's, here's what I wanted to convey. This is, uh, regardless of which armies came in, which forces won or lost the war, there was a gain. The winner of the war was war itself in activating capital and the economy at the expense, enormous expense, of an entire country that has actually been wiped out and transformed into the business of reconstruction, war and reconstruction. This is the first impression I wanted to share. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that's so important because, and, and I, I, often, I often get this perspective talking to people who know Latin America or, or think about Latin America a lot, which is the idea of economic interests and the idea of a war itself being the agenda. So the point isn't uh, the, the to, you know, you can analyze, you can always, one can always analyze the different interests of the different sides and the strategic imperatives. You can look at a map and say, ah, the regime has to take Latakia back, or Russia has to do this, or the Americans have to do this covertly, and the Saudis have this plan uh, for a sectarian um, agenda. But, but ultimately, the agenda or the and the victor in all this is war. And, and the longer it goes on and the more destructive it is, the less any, anybody can be said to be a victor except uh, the, the industries and the, and the rulers of the world that profit no matter what happens. And so I just, you know, it, 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 when, you look at, when you look at it that way and you see, you know, you have the United States on one side and Russia on the other and you have, you know, France and the UK and, and these other relatively minor um, powers by comparison, all, like the, the, most of the top uh, 
arms exporters in the world are involved in this war somehow. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's, as you say, if, if one looks, we used to say this about Colombia, but I haven't seen it as strongly confirmed before as I have directly now with the testimonies and the, and the outcomes of this war in Syria. The, if one looks at the war uh, from the different actions and interests of the warring factions and the events of the war themselves, one gets trapped, tangled in, of course, the suffering, the destruction, the emergency, because war in that sense is an argument is a very powerful argument that destroys all other arguments. In fact, it closes the space for other types of analysis and other projects. Now you have to deal with terror, with death and dying, with the, the, the uh, uh, basic necessities, with just surviving. So when that is happening, one loses sight of the fact that there are beneficiaries of this, uh, people who calculate coldly, people who will not face these necessities, these urgencies, these immediacies, who will not feel the pain, the terror, who will not lose their children, their house, a limb, uh, their income, their place, uh, their, their being, uh, their life project. They will not. There are people who will actually make who will actually achieve a concrete goal out of this. Those beneficiaries do exist and we lose sight of them. And I, I dare to state here that one cannot understand the, the war in Syria and probably elsewhere, but one cannot understand that war if one doesn't keep in mind and try to unveil who the concrete beneficiaries of this war are and what they have been after. And to me, once one begins to address this war and any other wars today from this perspective, one begins to unveil what happened here. For example, some of the closest people we saw there on the ground told us that the Russians were bombing the hospital systematically together with the Syrian government. And so what they tried to do was to expose the Russians as the criminals bombing healthcare system. I mean, as you know, Assad is a physician himself, so they, they're trying to point out that a physician is doing this stuff. So, uh, and uh, two things around this issue. One is that the UN, we were told, the UN tried to cover up this information and the evidence of these facts because Russia pays much of the money that the, U the WHO, the World Health Organization, receives for its, pro its programs to look after refugees. So they would not denounce the Russians acting in this way because they risk losing the money that pays for their jobs. We, and in fact, these jobs are profiting from the, con the conditions of misery, looking after the conditions of misery as an outcome of this terror generated. But then there's another aspect here. You can denounce the Russians doing this, but then you'd have to denounce the, every one of the other factions, the Saudis, the ISIS, the Americans, NATO, one after the other. So in the end, you need a type of wisdom here that actually allows you to denounce all this, but then point at one issue. The economy, the global capital economy, is being reactivated through the massive destruction of a country and its population, its dispossession. And then, yes, it matters who does this. Of course it does. Of course it matters if the Russians bomb hospitals or NATO bombs and kills people and triggers this entire war or the European Union. Of course it matters. But one cannot lose sight of the fact that these people who live in Syria were targeted by global capitalism, by specific actors, because an experiment could be carried out in there not only to profit from war, 
engaging oneself in it, but also to profit after the war with the reconstruction and the refugee care uh, efforts. And yes, uh, war has benefited the economy and there's gr economic growth again. So these are the kinds of things that are coming out. Yes, war has become, under the current crisis of capital, which is huge, probably the best and the foremost mechanism to reactivate the economy. And Syria is showing this as a fact. I dare to say that, uh, but I would need more information, but this is what I'd like to share. Yeah, and, you, and you're daring to say it, and I'm sure that many people would say, okay, here goes, uh, here goes one of these Marxists with his crazy conspiracy theories. But it, in fact, this is exactly what happened in Iraq since 2003. There's a playbook. It's not, it's not some, some kind of mad speculation that you're doing here. Iraq was destroyed. Uh, Iraq collapsed into civil war. Uh, Iraq's infrastructure was destroyed. There was an incredibly lucrative reconstruction industry. The petroleum industry was reorganized to the benefit of various neighbors in various complicated ways. There's humanitarian and other agencies that have taken over various parts of the country. Mm -hmm. The same for Afghanistan. So it's, I mean, in order to think of this as... Um, you know, impossible to believe or far-fetched, you have to ignore a lot of the recent history of the region and of the world. Exactly. Look, I, I, I and it goes on and on. The one, one aspect of this that one should quote under these circumstances, but first let, let us remind ourselves, we were part of that effort uh, called In the Name of Democracy, facing the whole democracy promotion process. And there was a there was a major conference in in the, in the states uh, organized by John Aguindin and other people on this issue. And one of the topics that came out is exactly what you you just underscored now. What happened in Iraq, which was going on at the time, and and I will never forget this situation. Naomi Klein had to face on the other side of the table in her in her panel. He had to face one of the major uh, contractors for the reconstruction uh, in Iraq. Somebody who was a representative. I can't remember who it was, but it would be easy to find out. And she had prepared a very diplomatic, although firm statement, in, in order to engage in a discussion with this contractor. But she changed the topic, and what she actually told this man to his face was, you had received a contract to reconstruct uh, Tehran even before, sorry, uh, Baghdad, Baghdad, even before the war started, even before the war was declared, and you accepted this contract. And she was very angry when she made this statement. And the answer this, this fellow gave her immediately, calmed, relaxed, without any difficulty was, look, the contract was out there. If we had not taken it, somebody else would have done it. It was inevitable and we were the best ones to do this. It was a transparent process in which we participated. So it exposes this as a fact. This, was, this is no unknown issue. So Syria, uh, Colombia, the same. The other thing I wanted to point out was now, the, in Colombia, FARC has signed a peace agreement with the Colombian government. Everybody knows about this. But what people don't realize is that the, the FARC delegation in Havana met with John Kerry, then uh, Secretary of State of the U.S., and the agreements had not been signed. And after that meeting, Maria Elena Salinas of Univision interviewed the commander of FARC, Timochenko. And on minute 15 of that interview in Spanish, Maria Elena Salinas insists to the commander of FARC, why would you trust the U.S. now when, in fact, it was your enemy 
through the Colombian state for so many years. Why would you become friends now? And he says, it's not friends, it's mutual convenience. And he said it would be the end of a huge expenditure in war that has taken place for so long. And she, you can tell she didn't trust that answer and insisted on obtaining an answer. And his answer was clearly, look, they need to access resources and territories for mega projects, which they haven't been able to do with our presence. Now that this peace agreement will be signed, well, they will have access to this territory. So this can go on and on. And in fact, uh, the, you can listen to the voice of one of the strongest, uh, most respected economists, mainstream economists, which is, whose name is Tyler Cohen. And on the 14th of uh, June in 2014, he published in the upshot in the New York Times an article explaining how uh, peace was actually a problem for the economy. He's an expert on economic stagnation and he explained how nothing but a war of the magnitude of the First and Second World War would allow capitalism to overcome its stagnation. In fact, using data from Harvard and other sources, he states and documents that from his perspective, from an economic perspective, there has been no war since the Second World War. So there would be a need now for a war of that dimension to overcome the economic stagnation the system is in. Now then he says, I'm not proposing a war like that, but maybe something, uh, a cold war proportional to the one that existed between the US and the Soviet Union, but involving the entire planet could activate the economy somewhat but never as much as a war could. And this is Tyler Cohen. This is not a Marxist uh, paranoia. This is uh, this fellow, and everybody has access to this article and can read it. So in fact, speaking and thinking coldly, capitalism once again needs a massive global war to activate the economy and overcome the expected crisis that it's undergoing, the deepest in its history. And, yeah, and that's I, the fact yeah. they want to put And I remembered that article. Uh, towards the end, he also flippantly says, well, of course, a war like that would destroy the planet, hardy har har. But uh, maybe there's some... And then he went into these other possibilities that you mentioned, a Cold War, an extended Cold War, or yeah. something like that. And, and, and something else I wanted to... to share with you and see, see how you look at this. Like, uh, we have this image of, of Trump uh, and what he's doing right now, him and his team, uh, I mean, the massive transfer of, of resources into war, uh, the hatred to migrants, etc., and the huge, etc., and they're all under the banner of Make America Great Again. So we're focusing on Trump, but here you go, Brexit. In England, uh, the, uh, the, the undertones are exactly the same. What you hear in England, in Great Britain all the time, is Brexit is justified. And so there's this narcissism, nationalism, this hatred for everybody else, and you feel exactly the same as Trumpism in England. No different. But then you go to Turkey, and on the 17th of April, Erdogan, the, the president of that country, has launched a referendum which he will win. And the referendum is once again a yes-no question, and this time it's, uh, he will gain all powers on that country. And he will become a totalitarian dictator supported by the idea of making Turkey an empire again and making Turkey great again. And this is all supported by a certain way of presenting Islam, his own uh, perspective. And so you see a, a Muslim fundamentalism moving everywhere. And Istanbul, an incredibly modern city, 
is under threat and you feel it in the streets. There's secret police and police everywhere. And the, there's a warning of uh, what's looming. And after April 17th, uh, you will have a huge army moving everywhere and you will have actually a state of war and this madness amongst the people of Turkey, most, the majority of the people of Turkey, which, is, which will become racist, intolerant and anyone who disagrees is actually very frightened as people are in the States and in England as well. So this kind of stuff is growing everywhere. In India, too, they just had elections in uh, the biggest state in India, Uttar Pradesh, and it was a sweep by the Hindu right-wing party, the BJP. And it's it's been interesting because since Modi was elected there, the, the leader of the BJP, uh, at the national level, he's had a lot of setbacks, like the demonetization initiative and there were a lot of local elections that didn't go his way early but this this election is a real blow to people who hoped that this right-wing movement would burn itself out or they would be corrupt and incompetent and, and kind of go away uh, and instead they seem to be able to recover from these blows and get stronger in a way that I don't see an answer to them uh, in any any of these big countries, any of these big democracies. Like the Democrats are not an answer to Trump, the Congress is not an answer to Modi, and uh, you know you know Turkey a little bit better than me, but I don't see anyone standing up to rival uh, Erdogan. There was there was an HDP, there was a coalition that was trying to uh, go up, you know, kind of raise the issue, but I understand that was bombings and massive repression and a kind of a launching of a war against the Kurds. Exactly. And and everybody feels that, that there are going to be bombings uh, right around the referendum if there's any chance that the opposition might become strong because every bomb supports the government and everybody tells you the bombs are most likely coming from the government itself. Uh, and, and and so there you you have that front, and you have the front also. I mean, the, it's in the news these days. I was the New York Times, the international edition on the 11th, 12th of March, that that stated another huge front that has been developing is that that one with this North-South Korea. Trump moving very quickly to establish those to set up those anti-missile. Uh, protection equipment, I can't remember its name, throughout the border between South and North Korea, which in fact are an aggressive posture against China. And then the reaction from the, the Japanese who are going to begin conscription in the near future. So they didn't have an army, they will have one very soon. And this coincides with the, with the, uh, with the fact that the because of corruption, the president of, of South Korea, President Park, the daughter of a di far-right dictator, was demoted, was impeached because of corruption, and the left was going or is going to win the elections in, uh, in South Korea if they take place. So by moving quickly into this situation against China, these, these, these warring... Uh, tensions are de developing uh, and that front and we think about Latin America we were very recently in Venezuela and what we saw in Venezuela is frightening because it doesn't seem like what what the different what the NATO and the US is looking for in Venezuela and the opposition to the to the government is looking for in Venezuela is ousting the government and and that's the end of that. No, it seems like the only outcome possible in Venezuela would be a massive, long-lasting uh, war involving the neighbors in Latin America. At the very least, Colombia and, Bra and Brazil would be involved because there is a massive popular militia that although many people are disappointed with the, with the Chavez and Maduro governments for different reasons, 
they, they are even more frightened and against the imposition of an opposition US-supported government with the backing of Colombia's paramilitaries and Uribe forces. So what would happen in Venezuela would be very similar to Libya or Syria. So we're beginning to see a model whereby wars and wars develop in different places in order to activate the economy, but to, to complement this image, right now there are military exercises being carried out by Russians and Chinese to protect Venezuela in the case of a NATO attack. So this is a model, and this is what the Zapatistas call Call me paranoid if you want, or ask Mr. Tyler Cohen, but the Zapatistas call it the Fourth World War, and it is not looming, it is advancing, and it, its purpose is to eliminate excess capital, excess population or labor, which they don't need, and to capture scarce resources. All this, the excess capital, the excess labor, and people and the, the deficit of nature are all the outcome of capitalism in its current phase. And it's going to solve its own crisis, the crisis it created, by eliminating the excess of population and capital and capturing territories through war. And this, I think, is what we see going on everywhere. Now, call me delusional. Maybe I am, but the frightening thing is... I see it. That's not what I was going to say. Uh, for me, part of the horror of the past seven or eight years that's distinct from the horror of the previous eight or nine years has been the fact that I think the resistance or people that I would expect to resist or hope to resist these wars and these programs has been has kind of demoted the opposition to war like there are more important things to oppose than war and, and I think that understanding that war is the worst tyrant of all and, and, and trying to direct opposition to towards that is so important right now and I don't see it I see a lot of revolutionaries or a lot of, you know, people we would consider to be the left looking for victory and looking for victory in armed struggles uh, that isn't going to happen. And under these circumstances, war seems to only serve the elites. Yeah, absolutely. And it serves the strategic purpose or purposes of capital that sound outrageous, but uh, that if you calculate from an economic perspective like Cohen does, they make sense and they, they need to be achieved. And there is, it is very important today to see, look, if you have options, and this is not the first time in history, beyond becoming one of the armies confronting each other. If there are alternatives to war, mm -hmm. uh, then once war starts, these alternatives are the first victims. It isn't the yeah. truth that this appears first with the war. The truth is already hidden as another version today. But once a war is looming, and, and facing the immediacy of war, what disappears are the the other options, the alternatives. Either we are for Trump or we are against Trump. Either we are with Erdogan or against Erdogan. We have to join one of the forces. And if we look back in history, for example, the the one of the places where I think we should learn a lesson from and we haven't learned it, which is the Spanish Republic and the Spanish Civil War, once and again it happens in the same way. These so-called social democracies that are actually weak right-wing programs, like the progressive governments in Latin America, who, which actually have a very strong 
anti-capitalist discourse and a very strong pro-capitalist practice from Venezuela to Brazil to others do two things. They, on the one hand, they, they provoke the right with the discourses and they promote the right with their practices. So eventually, you're led into a situation that is a no-win situation, a lose-lose situation. You either support a government that actually has betrayed its reason for existence and its popular origins, or you end up rising against that government and serving the purpose of the far right that wants to destroy them. So, so it's not only that the economic benefits of this situation are, are inevitable, it's also the fact that alternatives to capital are destroyed by war no matter who launches the war. And these are not the words of a pacifist. I'm not saying one should not take arms if one needs to defend oneself. But once the argument is war, then it is the argument of capital for capital and for accumulation. We end up doing the service to capital that it needs done to overcome its crisis. And the amazing thing is uh, when you read Marx himself in Capital, in volume 3, chapters 13, 14, and 15, so that I can be accused of being a Marxist. If you read that there, the organic law of capital exposes the fact that eventually these crises, these crises have to take place and they will become deeper and involving a greater geography. And once they happen, to overcome them, capital has to destroy excess capital and excess labor in order to capture scarce resources. So it wasn't, it's inevitable. It's just that capital has reached the very end of the planet. It involves the globe. Hence, the solution through war to a crisis of capital has to be a global war. And this in order to uh, reactivate accumulation. So it's either this, or as the Zapatistas and many others have said, it's we liberate ourselves from capital, which is simultaneously liberating ourselves from war. Such is the challenge I think we are facing everywhere. Well, talking about a hundred, you know, historical examples, a hundred years ago, uh, the socialists in Europe were trying to create a general strike to prevent World War One, and it was a kind of a narrow patriotism that was able to defeat them. They weren't able to unite because everybody ultimately chose their country over, you know, whether you want to say the global working class or peace. Um, and I see that happening again in this wave of right-wing, ultra-right nationalist movements. So, uh, going back to history, yes, it's even more recent. Everybody knows that the assassination of Rosa Luxemburg and her partner was actually uh, for war. I mean, you had the, the democratic progressive governments who had, which had a left-leaning discourse but supported progress. And progress... Uh, meant and still means today, it means capitalism. It means the concentration of the of the means of production in a few hands in order to generate accumulation and profit. And Rosa Luxemburg had this clear, and and he and her group and what was growing in Germany, Austria, and other countries in Europe were actually denouncing these governments as being part of capital, as was fascism. So, mm -hmm. so Rosa Luxemburg was actually murdered twice. She was murdered by the government, and uh, the social democratic government, but she was also murdered by Lenin, who actually purged her and transformed her into a pariah, mm. because she had made a statement about an interpretation 
of uh, primitive accumulation, which was not the official uh, interpretation. In fact, it is what we're talking about today. Rosa Luxemburg uh, understood that capital had to expand continuously, and that meant to go outside into other territories and capture other people, which is what explained the conquest of the entire uh, planet by capitalistic interests. And she said, only once capital involves the entire planet, maybe it will face it fi its final crisis. And this contradicted the assumption that primitive capitalism was something that happened in the past and it was over. So Lenin decided to eliminate Rosa Luxemburg as a bourgeois, uh, and she was rescued afterwards. So in the end, what we're seeing again and again is factions involving themselves within capital as warring factions and engaging us, all of us, in this war, and when there are alternatives to capital itself, then war is called upon to eliminate as, as irrelevant uh, any other forces or alternatives that could challenge capital itself. We have to conquer the state, and if we're looking to conquer a state, no matter which one, we want power. If we want power, we want capital, and we're replicating the enemy of humanity and life. And this is what I think we're facing again today. Yeah, and I mean, you know, alternatives to capitalism sounds very elevated, like a socialist, you know, communal society where everyone is equal. But in this context, it seems to me alternatives to capitalism are some, or it can be so simple as a, a healthcare system or an active union or a functioning uh, social safety net because all of these things are under the most savage attack in almost every society in the world. Yes, yes, and, and in fact, uh, communal forms, uh, territorial based uh, communities, like the, 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 the map of the planet is being remade, redesigned uh, as we speak. And it's being redesigned for the interests of capital. So now, you actually, you don't have, as I see it, this may be too daring, but I'm convinced of this, it's, it's not so much political parties and political ideologies confronting each other on the right and on the left. That is part of the same discourse, the same structure of discourse that... that uh, controls us and is part of capital. No, what I see today is on the one hand you have the political structure for accumulation with one discourse of the or the other in the spectrum from left to the right and then you have on the other side uh, processes that are seeking to become autonomous in different ways. Territorial based autonomous. So these are in fact, or at least in, from my point of view and what I've seen in different places, these are the counterparts. Movements such as the ones that mobilize to stop the Dakota Axis because they're defending war and couldn't care less about nationalities. Movements such as the most incredible one to me, the Kurds, who have... They don't have a nation state, but they do not, they're not fighting to have one. In fact, their freedom would be with establishing a confederation and not becoming a nation state. The Kurdish people are doing this. The Zapatistas in Mexico are, are moving in the same direction. So it's people who are grounded into smaller units, grounded in territories, with a direct relationship to these territories and trying to achieve autonomy within and between territories and peoples are being confronted, no matter what the discourse, by the machinery of bureaucracies and states 
at the service of a global project, which is capital. Yeah, and those those forces get very genocidal very quickly. I mean, with against the Kurds, it was ISIS, but it was obviously not ISIS. It was obviously Turkey that was behind so much of what was happening there. And the Zapatistas obviously have faced this for thirty, arguably five hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, and and yeah, you mentioned the Dakota Access, the Water Defenders. I mean that is also another struggle that has gone on for since the yeah for five centuries. So it's it's and 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 the most the most savage force is is dedicated to fighting those kinds of people, right? Those kinds of movements. Yes, that's the enemy. That's the problem. And, and in fact, we saw uh, what you were saying going back to Turkey, where we started the. The entire uh, Kurdish area in southern Turkey and uh, northern Syria is occupied at the moment by Turkish forces. The siege on cities is complete and we were told this story again and again. One city in southern Turkey, Kurdish city, uh, was surrounded by the Turkish army and complete siege where nothing could come in or leave the place. And then after hunger was striking the place and lack of resources, they entered at night and murdered in cold blood 268 people, mostly children, and nobody is able to even let this be known. And this is in order to choke Kobane, because Kobane has become an inspiration. So, yes, what you've just said is exactly what I'm convinced is the case. Capital now knows that it is confronted by forces of autonomous peoples grounded in territories who could actually challenge it. The ultimate argument is fascism and war. You either join fascists or you join an opposition force which is within the same system. Whoever wins, capitalism wins. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, you know, that's what I think happened. I've been reading a lot about the first few years of the war in Syria, and and a lot of the decisions made by the armed opposition are understandable, right? Like, of course, if you're being attacked, uh, if unarmed demonstrations are being attacked with heavy weapons, then you're going to try to defend yourself and try to defend them. And then if there's someone that offers you weapons, then you're going to take them. And then if that's someone offers you weapons and there are some strings attached but that aren't too intrusive then you're going to follow it and then that's eventually how the whole revolution got militarized and turned into this completely you know decentralized proxy war that destroyed the country perfect yeah now you help me this is something i was trying to, to to share and to discuss with you and this is that's the image here and everywhere so when people say, oh, uh, Trump is awful and we, this is what we're facing, I mean, Trump is, of course he's awful, but he's the face of an interest, of a, of a dynamic in, in that direction. It's the same in Venezuela. In Venezuela, sooner or later, many people are extremely unhappy with, we're unhappy with Chavez in the late, later years and are extremely unhappy with Maduro and all kinds of things that are not anti-capitalism, but a bourgeois, uh, but a left-speaking bourgeoisie. And the same in, in Brazil that was going on. But, but then people will have to, as you described for Syria, will have no option but to take the weapons from wherever they come and fight the other faction. And in the end, when war wins, capitalism wins. And we are actively being trapped into that dynamic today. And I believe this is what we need to begin to understand. One, that capitalism is facing its crisis through war once again. And two, that we cannot win that war, war is losing, and that the only thing we can win is stopping war, but actually through the dismantling and destruction of both capitalism and states. Uh, It sounds impossible, but it is... We either do that or face the fate 
of the Syrian people, uh, one country after the other. And I think the Zapatistas are right when they, facing this situation, they tell us, no matter how, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, just organize and become autonomous and get rid of capital. They've done it, they're doing it, they, and, and it's, it's our, our job to become engaged that way. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is happening. We cannot continue to deny alternatives to this machinery of death and destruction. Yeah, I mean, it might be easier than trying to survive post-nuclear war or trying to survive after climate change burns the planet. It might be easier than that, so if those are the alternatives. And plus, there's one number, one, one uh, that comes out in the Middle East that's incredible, which is the number of refugees, the number of people killed in the war in Syria. The, then you look at Iraq, Iran, and the other countries, and you see, as United Nations put it before its recent humanitarian conference in Istanbul, that mm. for the next 20 years there are, in that region alone, close to 200 million people are at risk of death. So if yeah. people think war yeah. is coming, they don't yeah. know what planet they're in. Yeah. It's here. Oh, thanks, Manuel. It's been, uh, as usual, not the most happy conversation, but at least we can... It's, it's always helpful for me to try to talk to you, or to talk to you to try to understand my own thoughts, but also, you know, how to, to get your perspective on what's going on in the world, so... Thank you Thanks. very much for this exchange, which helps me actually verbalize some of the things. Unfortunately, what came out in this exchange had to be frightening, but yeah. uh, it, it's not the only thing. Yeah, so when you, you can come back and we'll try to talk more about autonomy and strategy and some other things. Yeah.